Well, I'm going to start with a, a Joe Hill tune, since Dan mentioned the labor stuff. And Joe Hill was in the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, which had a strong connection to Chicago. It was founded here in 1905. And also this song, um, Joe Hill was executed in 1915, but this song was popular with railroad workers and hobos and people that were doing all kinds of jobs here in the U.S. And they would learn this and sing it. And Carl Sandburg, another Illinois musician, poet, collector, collected this one and put it in one of his early collections. It's called Casey Jones, the Union Scout. Workers on the ESP line to strike Senato call. But Casey Jones, the engineer, he didn't strike at all. His boiler, it was leaking. Travels on the bomb. And his engine and his bearings, they were all out of plumb. Casey Jones kept his junk pile running. Casey Jones, he was working double time. Casey Jones got himself a wooden medal for being good and faithful on the ESP line. The worker said to Casey, won't you help us win the strike? Casey Jones said, let me alone, you oughta take a hike. Then Casey's wheezy engine ran right off the worn out track. And Casey hit the river with an awful crack. Casey Jones hit the river bottom. Casey Jones broke his blooming spine. Casey Jones became an Angelino and took a trip to heaven on the SP line. Casey got to heaven right up to the pearly gates. He said, I'm Casey Jones, I haul the SP freight. You're just a man, said Peter. The musicians are on strike. You can get a job scabbing anytime you like. Casey Jones got a job in heaven. Casey Jones thought he was doing mighty fine. Well, Casey Jones, he went scabbing on the angels just like he did the workers on the ESP line. Union 23, they sure were there, and they promptly fired Casey down that golden stair. Casey Jones went to hell a flying. Casey Jones never said, Oh, fine. Casey Jones get busy shoveling sulfur. That's what you get for scabbing on the SP line. That's what you get for scabbing on the SP line. That's what you Scabbing on the ESP line. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. <clears throat> what can I say? Oh, the SP line, in case you didn't know, is the Southern Pacific, still in operation. At the time, the owner, uh, Jay Gould, was a much despised person by many people, including most of the people who worked for him, because he treated them badly and said bad things about his workers in public <laughs> all the time. So I'm not surprised that Casey Jones would have mentioned uh, him in that song. And I should mention about Joe Hill, uh, since we, we've got a, a fellow Scandinavian here doing our engineering tonight. <laughs> that Joe Hill was actually a Swedish immigrant. He was born in 1879, came to the U.S. in 1903, executed in Salt Lake in 1915 uh, on a murder charge for which there really was no evidence other than the fact that he, well, one, he's an immigrant, two, he was radical, three, he had a union card in the IWW, and then four, people were singing songs like that by the time he was executed. So he was uh, not looked upon fondly by the, the authorities of Utah, and uh, even though the King of Sweden intervened and the president of the US. They couldn't stop the governor from doing what he needed to do from his perspective. So, so I'm gonna change, uh, yeah, change temperament here a little bit since Dan asked me to jump around a little bit. Uh, this is a song and uh, maybe Dan will ask me about it later. I just gave him an explanation. I don't wanna repeat myself, but some, Sometimes I play in a little town called Havana, Illinois, down uh, the Illinois River. Um, and uh, the first time I went down there to play many years ago, second time actually, we stayed at the Havana Motel, uh, Havana Inn I call it in the song. And as we drove in, it was an old mom and pop hotel with a little neon sign over the top where you drove through down the driveway to your rooms. Uh, then as I walked out of the car to check in and my lovely wife Tony came with me, we noticed there was a squirrel in a cage outside the office and she was not too happy. She later, after having a couple cocktails, tried to convince me to liberate that squirrel with the wire cutters in my truck and uh, I promised her I would write a song instead. And then, uh, maybe later I'll say a little more about the song because there's a post-song story to this as well, but let me just play a song called Squirrel in a Cage. Down in a van at the Sycamore Inn, they got a squirrel in a cage. They make him run around in circles all day, but he never does get away. Me, I'm sitting in my easy chair, living in 16A. Down in a van at the Sycamore and they got a squirrel in a cage. I stopped in Havana for a beer one day when the fireflies blew through town. I saw the little red matchbook sitting on a bar and I made my motel call. I dialed 309-5434 in a 454. I got cable and color and fridge in the stove and a lock that works on the door. 
around in a van at the Sycamore Inn. They got a squirrel in a cage. They make him run around in circles all day, but he never does get away. I'm sitting in my easy chair, I'm living in 16A. Down in the valley at the Sycamore Inn, they got a squirrel in a cage. I was working on the pumps at the gas old mat when the dog days walked right by. Four blocks from the river to you from the bar, my throat never gets too dry. The monthly rates are reasonable for a loser in love, that's fair. They got peanuts for my buddy each day, and we ain't going nowhere. Down in a van at the Sycamore Inn, they got a squirrel in a cage. They make him run around in circles all day, and never get away. Me, I'm sitting in my easy chair, I'm living in 16A. In a van at the Sycamore Inn, they got a squirrel in a Now it's Sunday morning and it's sleepy morning I'm drinking my breakfast beer I'm leaving 200 bucks, keys on the bed I'm gonna drive right out of here I got my little gray friend in a cardboard box On the bench seat at my side I'm gonna drop him off by the Mississippi River And jump back in and drive I'm gonna drop him off at the Mississippi River And jump back in and drive Sycamore in, they got a squirrel in a cage. They make him run around in circles all day, but he never does get away. Me, I'm sitting in my easy chair, I'm living in 16A. Down in the valley at the Sycamore in, they got a squirrel in a cage. Down in the valley at the Sycamore in, they got a squirrel in a cage. Down in the valley at the Sycamore in, they got a squirrel in a cage. Well, ha having heard the follow-up to that song, I, I, I would have to ask you to share it because I thought it was pretty neat. Yeah, what, what happened was, uh, because I have played down there fairly regularly over the years, and it shows you how uh, rumors travel quickly in small towns. One night I played on a Saturday night down there, and then the next day I had to go back on Sunday and play at a, there's a museum just a few miles away, a state museum, and they asked me to come on the Sunday and do a different program Sunday afternoon. So I play Friday night, I stay in the hotel, the next day I come back on Sunday and do the gig, and before the gig on Sunday, this woman comes, older woman comes walking down the aisle at the auditorium at the museum and says to me, I'm the woman that owns that motel. And I said, okay, and she said, I didn't put that squirrel in the cage. I didn't do that, that was a woman that worked for me. She's the one who got the squirrel in the cage. So she kind of chewed my butt out, but uh, 
I kind of like the fact that she even bothered to come out that it had annoyed her so much that I would write a song about her. So, Another irony about that song, Dan, is I can't figure out how, but somehow for about five years I made about $200 a year off royalties from Swiss radio. And I'm thinking to myself, what, what did the Swiss get out of that song? I, I just lost all that somehow, but... You know, what the heck, if it made money, I'm not going to complain too much, so. It might be a national anthem eventually. That'd be great. <laughs> it feels a little bit like that from administration to administration over here right now. Right, right. We're all squirrels in a cage. Squirrels in a cage. Um, I know you've, you've got two albums that mention where you were born, I think, Wisconsin, right? True. And... Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what that was like, where, where you grew up, and kind yeah. of paint a picture. Yeah, I grew place. up in uh, Ashland, Wisconsin, which is way up on Lake Superior. It's about 450 miles from here, um, an old iron ore and lumber town. Um, and that's where I grew up and went to high school, and that's where I started playing music. Strangely, uh, people don't think of it, there is a rich musical heritage there. Um, it's mostly polkas and kind of bar band music dating back to my parents' generation and long before that as well. Um, because every night, you I mean every Friday or Saturday, you'd go out for fish fry and there'd be a supper club or a bar and somebody would be playing polka music with the accordion or a polka band with horns. Um, but I just got interested in music as a kid, and when the British invasion came, when I was 13, I bought a guitar on time and an amp, a Gibson amp, and started a band, and we started playing, and, and mostly we just did like whatever the rock songs were that day. I sometimes wish I had recordings of us. It must have been... We must have been pretty rugged, ragged, garage band stuff. But, you know, it was the Animals, Stones, Beatles, Ventures, that kind of stuff. But uh, as I was telling you earlier, I got annoyed with band members already when I was a teenager. And fortunately, I ran into a couple of folk musicians that are still very active in Minneapolis and around the country, Pop Wagner and Charlie McGuire. And they started teaching hey, me. Yeah, they're yeah. good guys. Yeah. Pop, and, I know Pop. Yeah, Wagner. Pop is, uh, gets around a lot. And... They went to college, this tiny college in my hometown, and you know I started playing, and then I started doing whatever I could at church coffee houses uh -huh. and stuff. And uh, as I mentioned to you, I often made more money then than I do now if I play a coffee house. <laughs> I don't want to say when that was, but that's the the pay scale for musicians, if anything, has gone down over the last 50 years, unfortunately. So were you? <clears throat> Were you interested in, when you started getting into folk music, or even before, were you political? Did you come from a political family or environment? I, I did come from a very political family with divided opinions, which was maybe a good thing. My grandparents actually were rooted in Chicago. My grandfather was, worked in the stockyards on my mom's wow. side and was a hardcore Democrat, um, and so was his wife who was kind of an early suffragette kind of women's rights person. Um, my dad uh, became increasingly what I would call a right-wing nut uh, <laughs> over time, which 
made him an interesting foil for me as a teenager. Yeah, especially combined with heavy drinking that he did, it made it especially <laughs> interesting. We had a lot of, yeah, heated discussions, let's just put it that way. But I, yeah, I did get interested in political stuff and, you know, it was the 60s and there was a lot of political music even on the radio in some ways, so that helped suck me in even more, you know, because emotionally, I, if you're playing music and it can be political and then you're learning Woody Guthrie, that's all the better you can... Right. I mean, I already could get inside of the music, but if it had the politics in there as well, that really made it fun, you know, and interesting. For me, I could so invest... So you, you saw it as connected because that was what was in the air in the 60s too, you think? Or? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, re- I think part of that... Be- between, say, my, my own family situation, and I also had a strong sense of history, thanks to my parents uh, and my grandparents. Um, but then you sort of tie the politics of the 60s and interest in history and all that music, and that just kind of, I mean, kind of been doing the same thing ever since. <laughs> I hate to say it. I, I, I think you have in your repertoire, is it Stockyard Blues, or, do you, or is... Yeah, maybe some, it'd be fun. Maybe hear something about the the stockyards or Chicago urban music of that time. Or well, I'm not I, putting you on too much of a spot. No, you're not. Actually, what I could do, I'm jumping ahead, but that's just fine yeah, with we'll, me because we'll we get back. We know this is a tight show because uh, Tim Farron's here and everything he does is perfectly executed. Like bang, bang, bang. It's like a Hollywood film, right, Tim? Every day. <laughs> Every day. It's a well-scripted life you've got going there, Tim. Um, why don't I... I'll do this. This is a Woody Guthrie song from okay. the, that, that pertains to Illinois and labor here in Illinois. A lot of people don't know. Woody spent a lot of time here starting in the 30s. I found a nice old telegraph in Woody's uh, archives that he sent to his wife in the late 30s saying, I arrived in Chicago. I'm staying at the home of... Louis Turkle, and then he gave the address. And it was, you know, Studs Turkle. Um, and, and, you know, Woody kind of kept this connection going, played here uh, a few times, came here for some big rallies, then got drafted at the end of World War II and spent time in southern Illinois, which had its, its own special labor history connected with the coal mines. This is, uh, it's actually one of my favorite Woody Guthrie tunes, although... It's not much performed, and I, um, I kind of reinvented it, which Jason McGinnis over there encouraged me to always reinvent songs to suit my own emotional framework. So this is a song called The Dying Miner, true story about a mine disaster, Centralia, Illinois, 1947, 111 miners died, post-World War II, they still hadn't reimposed the pre-war safety standards in the mines. Coal mining's always dangerous, and Illinois has the dubious distinction of having some of the worst coal mining disasters, although most people don't even think of it as a coal mining state. But uh, I should mention, too, Woody always said he didn't really write this song. These are all based on notes that people left in the mines uh, as they were dying, and then when they went down and took the bodies out, uh, he... He, uh, these notes were reprinted in the paper and he used them to write this song, The Dying Miner. It 
happened an hour ago Way down in that tunnel of coal A gas caught fire from somebody's lamp And the miners are choking on smoke Goodbye to my honey, little Dickie that I love Most all of the miners won't be coming home tonight when that work whistle blows Dear sister and brother goodbye Dear mother and father goodbye My fingers are weak and I cannot like the end for me All my buddies I see All writing letters on a slate rock wall Please carry these words to my wife I found a little place with some air And I crawled and I drove myself there For the things I've done wrong I love you lots more than you know When the night's whistle blows And I don't come home Do all that you can to help mom I can hear, I can hear the moans and the groans
Actually, a, a big fan of both the Woody Guthrie one and and your version of that. And oh, it's, thanks. And it's cool because I think, if I remember right, I mean it's sort of generous to call the original maybe two chords. It's a pretty yeah, it simple is. one. It really and, uh, is. Yeah. <laughs> so w- were you were you trying to play it that way, and you just thought, hey, this isn't me, or how? Yeah, how I did. You I yeah. you know I was working on that uh, I, that CD of labor songs from Illinois, which I did about uh, 16, 17 years ago now. And, you know, a lot of those songs, you and I were talking about this, there's even songs from the 19th century. Um, and the 19th century ones are really hard to kind of get your head around as a contemporary musician. They're often based on Civil War songs or Protestant hymns from that period. It's hard to sit down and figure out a way to do it that speaks to you when you're trying to perform it or you're trying to even you know record it on a record and then even some of the woody stuff like that one um i just to me it was like and i'm not you know trying to revise everybody's music but i i love the story um and it's it's a powerful story from labor history about miners who die and this is not uncommon before they die they leave notes behind I mean what could be more touching and emotionally like draining than reading that and would he use this to write the song and I just thought well I've got to reinvent this a little bit for myself and uh, so I don't know how I came up with that I just you know you I sit around at night and just play with them until my wife goes insane and then <laughs> shut up if you play mo- one more like finger exercise on the guitar I can't. Well, it's got, I think, some of the rock energy in that I think we're used to hearing a song build up to sort of a, a climax in a way that some of the kind of hillbilly stuff that Woody Guthrie did didn't always true. do. That, that's very true. I mean, I, it is, that's a pretty typical thing from uh, traditional music and, and early hillbilly, early country is um, from our vantage, it seems kind of emotionally flat. I think once you dig into that and you live inside it a long time, whether you grow up in it or you invest time in it, you start to hear the emotion in there, like the Carter family. But sometimes, I mean, even Woody can be really kind of flat emotionally and he's singing about these powerful things. And uh, just for me, I just felt like I had to invest in it in a different way. And you know, I, you know, I played in a lot of rock bands, so it's like, well, why not just change it around and notch it up and build the emotion in, in other ways that you can build the emotion as well. So I think if I remember right, you took out the the Woody the Stalinist line about name our new baby Joe so it'll be strong like like Big Joe, right? Yeah, that, that is true. Yeah. There's a whole verse there about 
different names, uh, some of which are local miners who died in the accident, in fact, and then others. And uh, yeah, I tried to work with that and make it, and make it work in the song, and I just couldn't, so I just yeah. left that verse out. And again, you know, Jason's always telling me, do whatever you need to do, Bucky. And <laughs> Tim Farron does the same thing, and I, I follow their lead all the time. <laughs> And you too, Dan. Or <laughs> just follow us all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll follow you too. Yeah. Um, so you were playing these garage rock bands and stuff. You're playing a little bit on the side on your own. And then, and then you get into you're studying history as eventually yeah. as, a, as a PhD student, right? Right. How, how did that all start? Up? Uh, well, you know, I went away to college as far away as I could get and still afford it. I, 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 I really worked out a good scam to get out of town. I didn't have a telephone. I didn't have to talk to my parents. It was like a dream come true. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was nice. I, w I went to school in Idaho, strangely enough, in a town that has a very special place in history where, and it connected to the IWW, the ex, a former governor of Idaho was blown up as he opened up the gate to go into his house and they blamed it on the newly formed IWW when in fact the two people who were the head of the IWW were in Colorado at the time even. But they were charged with murder and brought there in a famous trial. Their, their attorney was Clarence Darrow. Um, and I guess that's a nice segue. While I was there, I got more and more interested in folk music and in history and I started playing a lot. You know, there were little places like this in town. It was a small college town, but there was a supper club there. I'd play at a pizza place and get hired by other colleges and, and I got interested in that. And you know, I, and I was getting more interested in, in history. And um, so I you know, was digging the, into the Woody Guthrie, digging into the labor music. I went to graduate school and dug even deeper like you do is when you're in a geek in graduate school. In a, <laughs> in a field, and I was in U.S. history, and, and I did all my research, the serious stuff I did in my dissertation and, and other things was related to working class music and poetry going back to the S Civil War. Still a very much underappreciated, understudied subject, but, um, you know, it was a struggle after that, I have to say. It, 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 it was a long struggle of trying to find a way to put my own musical interests and the labor together. And, uh, it, um, you know, it was okay. It's okay to be an egghead in the academic community as long as you follow the rules. I found academia to be, it's like working in a corporation. You have certain rules of behavior you have to abide by, even though academics can be liberal politically or left wing, but they're very conservative to how they think about things. And for me, it was always a struggle because the music was looked upon with great suspicion. <laughs> Everywhere I went, every job interview I ever had, they were like, well, isn't this music going to interfere with your teaching? Well, why? You know, some, excuse me, asshole in the business department goes and plays 18 holes of golf every day. Doesn't that, doesn't that interfere? So you think it's wrong that I want to play guitar two hours a day and go out on Friday night and play a gig? But really it was this, it, it, it astounded me. I never thought it would be like that. So I had to work to try to create a space where I could kind of do that. And it, it, it was hard, you know. I mean, the good thing is I ended up uh, coming to Chicago and was, you know, between part-time teaching and 
you know, doing grant, figuring out how to write grants and different things and doing some other teaching, I was able to kind of figure out ways to put that together. But it, it's taken a long time. It took a long time to do that. Yeah. And then, you know, I find, uh, uh, strangely enough, rock musicians tend to be more open-minded about all kinds of things. Sometimes folk musicians, we all know about the a folk Nazi mindset that can sometimes take over in the folk music world and some people in that world too look at you suspicious if they think you play in a rock band or you're, you have a PhD, like how could you be a serious f traditional folk musician and have a PhD? You must be not really serious about the genre of <laughs> folk music. So and I never shared that. I guess I'm basically an anarchist at heart, Dan. <laughs> I, you know, I think people, I like to try to, th yeah, I think we all, if we can, it's good to get outside our basic boundaries, and I don't know, maybe it's because of my childhood or whatever, I just always wanted to try to do things in a way that worked for me, but it's, that's not always so easy, as you know, in the work world. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe we could have you do another song. I'm still, I'm probably going to get back to you on the Joe <coughs> Hill and the yeah. Guthrie, maybe, maybe something of your own that you've work on or okay or yeah let me try let me try something here um, well why not go all the way I like the sound of that um, since this speaks directly to that issue, if I can slot my way through the introduction on this. Well, you can always just delete this song if you... Or Gunner can just say, God, that was lousy. Let's just get rid of it right now. chair and proceeded to stare with a gasoline burn in her eyes do your color outside of the lines do your color outside of the lines have you found where the others can't find have you tried hard to see how it turns out to be do your color outside of the line Said the last one he had his excuses When his passion was spending a day He always saw red when I sat up in bed He would shrink when I held up my sign Do your color outside of the lines Do your color outside of the lines where the others can't find Have you tried hard to see How it turns out to be Do your color 
outside of the lines I once heard of a new revolution where the water was turned into wine but they branded me mad and my throat nearly had for reciting my childhood rhyme do you color outside of the lines do you color outside Outside of the lines The word is the poets and peacocks I always pluck every color save blue And that you're on the run from the point of their gun For raising the question one time the color outside of color outside of the line Have you found where the others can't find Have you tried hard to see how it turns out to be Do you color outside of the line Thank you. 
Chicago, and as I understand, you're playing in rock bands, and uh, there was a band with the Remainders. Remainders. Right. And I remember from talking to you before, you started kind of sneaking in some folk songs, some Woody Guthrie stuff into the sets. I, I did. What you told yeah, me. and it was that was a fun band because, um, and again, you know, it's a pity it broke up, but personalities in bands are always a problem. Rock bands, they're even worse. Um, but uh, we played, we had an accordion player, which made us very different from the usual rock band. He was also a really good, I mean, he, his dad worked for the Hammond Organ Factory. He was a great Hammond player. Most of us grew up playing the piano. This kid, actually, this guy grew up playing the Hammond B3 and then moved to the accordion. Um, and we had a really great sax player. But we did a lot of New Orleans stuff, and we did some Zydeco stuff. We did... Tex-Mex, we did folk rocky things, we did straight ahead rock pop things. It was really kind of all over super eclectic, just what record companies love. And yeah, it was, it was strangely enough, it was like the kind of band your grandmother and your, you know, your, your four-year-old would like or something, which is, it means you're doomed. Uh, but, but it was fun to play in because of that, because we were so different from the usual rock bands in town. Are you ever performing in front of a historical society somewhere and think to yourself, man, I wish I was, I wish I had that band behind me and I was oh, all the time. some bar. I sure do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that would be a great band because I, I go to, to Europe uh, uh, quite often, uh, pretty much every year for 25 years I've been going over there and doing concerts. And, and that is a band that in Europe you could just, you could clean up at festivals and at, and in and clubs, um, yeah, it is too bad. But you know, it's they're rock bands. That everybody wants. I, I mean, I wasn't like that because I don't know why. But I never wanted to be famous as a rock star. I just wanted to have a band that could keep working for a long time. <laughs> you know, I had more modest ideas. Yeah, let's get on an indie label and we'll just deal with that. But you know, the, some of the other guys were younger and they wanted to. You know, they wanted to be stars, and they were always arguing with each other, like somehow that person was interfering with the process of them becoming rich and famous. So. And, and now they're rich and famous, right? Now they're rich and famous. Uh, yes, the ones that wanted it the worst are hardly play at all anymore, because eventually they couldn't find anybody to play with them. <laughs> it's actually true in two, in two of the cases, yes. <laughs> well, what have you learned as someone who's been playing music for... <clears throat> decent amount of time like what is it that gives you longevity to keep doing it um well part of it is the same thing that motivated me when i was uh you know a kid and we had a piano when we bought a house there was a piano in it and i started tinkering on it and then um like like um gunner on the banjo um i decided sometimes when i played the piano or the guitar, um, I felt better in my head somehow. I got a different, I went into a different space in my brain. <laughs> and, and I love being able to do that. And I always tell the story, when I was about 16, a bunch of my friends and I, eventually my father left home, which was like having the windows open up for the first time in years. And uh, 
my sixth grade teacher who encouraged me to play in music. I, I had a duo in sixth grade with a drummer and acoustic guitar. You know, it was so funny. And I would write songs and she'd let us play in the classroom. It was like, and this is in a small town in Wisconsin. She was getting rid of her piano and my friends who were older had a truck. They loaded it in. We took it over to the house, put it in the basement. Then I had a piano of my own even in the basement, you know. And I loved it because if I ever didn't feel like I belonged in whatever space the world was in, I could go down there and find a different place to put my brain for a while. And music still does that, you know. Um, I play the guitar every day and I feel that, um, you know, I, I don't want to play, you know, I don't want to play any scales. I hate playing scales. I don't care about my chops anymore. Then I sit down, even if the TV's on and I play for 10 minutes, I feel better. It's just something, it's partly physical about just interacting with the instrument, but also just playing for a few minutes. And uh, I've never lost that. I mean, it's not like I love every song that I play all the time, but, you know, I still find that as I'm performing or just practicing, I just, it, 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 I don't know, I find it to be an interesting space, you know. I, I, I know it's kind of weird. It's sort of like its own kind of, Drug. I mean, we all get that in other ways. I mean, I, I did a lot of sports, too. You can get into a different space doing that as well. There's lots of ways to do that. That just happened to be one for me, you know. What, what's the longest you've gone without doing it? Uh, I mean, without actually, like, picking up a guitar um, or playing music? Uh, maybe two weeks, the longest. Yeah, that'd be about the longest I've ever gone. I would say... Were you getting crazy? Um... Yeah, well, usually, uh, I wouldn't say I was crazy because I would, if that was the case when things like that would happen a lot, it was when I was traveling somewhere via airplane and couldn't take something it with me. Something else was going on, like being in Rome for two weeks. Um, I didn't miss the guitar, yeah, because it was too cool to be at all the places in Rome and it had its own music. There's, Rome has a music in itself. I'm joking, but I'm being I'm being honest. So, yeah. if you've never seen Roman Holiday, have you else? Yeah, I mean, movie. watch the movie and then go to Rome. I mean, you you you'll see. It's a great post-war movie about American and yeah European relations as well. So, um, I'm, I'm I'm just gonna do this segue list. But okay. one one thing I I know about you is you reached out to was it Woody Guthrie's ex-wife Marjorie, right? Who was with them pretty much until yeah. he died. Yeah, that, that's another interesting little story. I, uh, I was in college and I wanted to write my, you know, you got to write a senior paper if you're in history. I wanted to write it on Woody Guthrie. So there weren't any books at the time other than a couple of books that Woody had written. Um, one, well, it was his autobiography and then it was a collection of his, like Woody Says, I think the collection was called. And a friend of mine, Charlie McGuire, this musician from Minneapolis who had been to New York and, and Pop too, they had actually gone to see Woody in the hospital. And uh, Pop gave me the address for Marjorie Guthrie and he said, well, just write to Marjorie. That was Woody's second wife and the one who took care of him and he became ill with Huntington's disease. And... Um, so I wrote to her, and she wrote back, and you know she d couldn't help me much because there wasn't much out there. 
there was one professor at, the, at a community college in Oklahoma who was doing the first real serious research um, and the biography that Joe Klein from the New York Times had written was just coming out, so it was very hard, but she was uh, very supportive. And she and I would exchange letters. I actually turned them over to the Guthrie Archives a few years ago. And um, in 1977, I think it was, they opened a special clinic for Huntington's disease in Minneapolis with the University Hospital. And I was in graduate school there. And uh, I got to open for her speech that she gave at the HD facility. And uh, so I had a chance to meet her and uh, actually talk to her, which was quite wonderful and then you know I became friends with her daughter Nora as well and done some gigs with Arlo in, in Germany and uh, he and I have crossed paths a few times so yeah you, you never know when you're younger um, I mean what's going to happen when you just drop a letter and email to somebody it's quite fascinating what happens so and um, what, what are some of the things that I don't know, that you learn about Woody Guthrie or that you learn to look at differently about Woody Guthrie from knowing his family? How, how did it make you rethink things, having that interaction oh, anyway? Well, I think when you're young, it's like Bob Dylan for some people, or it could be, you know, it could be the Ramon, Joey Ramon, it might be the Clash. I, it, it, you have this kind of idealized vision of these people and uh, you know a lot of people still have very idealized ideas about Woody Guthrie but you know when you're around the family you get a different perspective you know that okay maybe he wasn't a great parent even before even before he knew he had Huntington's disease maybe he was a, a womanizer um, and there's plenty of women to attest to that around the country um, you know, so you get a different perspective, but then you just start to see, well, he's a complicated guy, even if, you know, I liked a lot of his songs and a lot of his politics. Um, and it isn't like he had a second life where he was, you know, beating his children in private or something. It's not, you know, like the jazz pianist Bill Evans kept up this very sort of middle class lifestyle, I think in the suburbs, I can't even remember where, but in the meantime was a heroin addict, you know what I mean? and abusing all the time. It's like, at least with Woody, you know, it was pretty upfront. It was upfront. Yeah, being, it was. Kind of a wild yeah, kind of a wild life. person, you know. And then at some point, and I, uh, you know, you, um, you learn too that the disease begins to affect his behavior. Um, I did from looking through the documents. But, you know, it's interesting, like I've even sat down with Jody, who is one of the Guthrie children you never even hear from. He lives in San Francisco, and he's got a very different perspective on his dad and then Arlo has one perspective because he was the one child who was raised by his dad still had some quality years before the disease kicked in Nora didn't have as much of that so was you know, Arlo the oldest then? yes he's okay. the oldest so uh -huh. it's a it's you know it's just like every family there's different dynamics and you learn some of that from being around the family mm -hmm. you know so but they've always I mean especially Nora was really generous to me about the archives and coming in and doing research and you know, uh, opened everything up. I mean, I, I got to look at everything that was there. She'd pull out the original copy of This Land is Your Land and let me look at that and go through all the journals and diaries. And yeah, this was before a lot of the scholars were using it and 
now it's in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oh, and, really? It's yeah. not in what used to be in Coney Island. No, it moved from New York. Um, it was on 57th Street. It moved to Tulsa a few years ago. She's just getting older and didn't want to be an archivist the rest of her life. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, it's worked out pretty nicely, although for some people, I'd, I'd yeah, I think I'd rather go to New York and dig into the archives. And Where he'd some, been living. Yeah, he'd been, time, exactly. Right? I mean, I think he saw that at his home. So it wasn't like it was without controversy. Some people uh-huh. thought it would be nicer if it stayed in New York. But, you know, she had to do what she had to do, and they were welcoming it. And also, Oklahoma can use a little bit of uh, people like w- the voices, could use a little voice. Outside vo- of the lines. Right? Yes, outside <laughs> of the lines, and bringing the Guthrie Center there does that they have school kids come into programs the archives are open to people they go out and do satellite programs so i it served uh, a, a very useful function you know and they've been able to preserve the documents in a way that nora couldn't afford to do george kaiser gave a few million dollars to build a center and to establish it as a formal archive and that's really important as well I know you have a whole album of your interactions with Woody Guthrie as well as some of his songs. Maybe yeah. could, you could do something from there. Or sure. Yeah. Let me, let me try that. I'm going to take a second here because I noticed uh, my guitar was out of tune on that color outside the lines. I want to make sh- sure I get back on track here. Thank you, Gunner. Very good. Would, would Woody have tuned it at this point? Nope. <laughs> Woody needed Gunner hanging out with him. I I have to say that um, that's yes. When I listen to some of those old Woody Guthrie records, the guitar is so out of tune. Uh, it drives me crazy sometimes. And you don't hear that with the Carter family. You know what I mean? And I just with Woody sometimes I just don't think he. I just don't think he cared. He was just kind of a, he was definitely a free spirit. So, all right, let's see if we can get this up to pitch now. This bottom string again. Sorry about that. I'm gonna play a tune here. I should have been talking the whole time anyway. Um, Play a tune that I wrote for Woody Guthrie's first wife, which people forget about. Uh, Her name is Mary. Guthrie. Woody was married three times. I didn't mention that. That gives you a different perspective, too. I didn't know that as a kid. And his first wife, he was like 22 when he got married. She was, I think, 15. You know, in Texas, you can do that. I don't know. Maybe you could still do that in Texas. But uh, she's just a she, um, Woody moved down there, uh, you know, his family was falling apart. Um, when he was a teenager, they lost all their money. His mother was, they thought, mentally ill. Crazy would be the word. They put her in the state mental institution. Turns out she had Huntington's disease, but her behavior was very abnormal. Um, yes, it's, to say the least. One example is she doused her husband with kerosene while he was on the couch asleep and lit him on fire. Now, I know, ladies, you might be tempted to do that. My wife says she'd prefer gasoline because it's a more efficient, (laughs) flammable liquid. I'm joking, but (laughs) I'm just joking. But that's what Woody had to deal with as a teenager, which, you know, 
does explain some of his behaviors. By the time he's a teenager, he and his brother are kind of coming and going from on the house and living in a shack on the edge of the town. They've lost all their money. Their dad, you know, he's sick, recovers from the burns. It's a depression. He had real estate. That all went south. One of the houses was ruined in the tornado. So Woody goes down to Texas and uh, hangs out down there and uh, gets married and tries to have a tries to have a little bit of a normal life for a while. And it didn't quite work. And this is during the Dust Bowl. But um, Tony, is Mary still alive? She is. She's got to be close to 100 years old now, right? Yeah, 96. And, and I have to say in honor to Nora and Arlo, every time they have a Guthrie function, they get Mary there. They make sure that she's at these big events. So it's really great. Miss Mary Jennings was the bride in her uncertain smile Wearing her new dress and stockings Looking somewhat shy She always saw the dust clouds Coming round the bend She's staring at the camera now Like something could soon end yeah, there's a shadow in the photograph mark 1933 Hanging in the foreground Damn hard not to see It might just be the cameraman Or a Texas dust bowl cloud It might be Mr. Huntington Come riding into town Mr. Woodrow Wilson Guthrie is wearing his best tie, his neatly starched white collar shirt, looking somewhat sly. For the moment here is grounded, his feet flat on the ground, but he never would admit for long, Pampa was his town. Yeah, there's a shadow in the photograph mark 1933 Hanging in the foreground, damn hard not to see It might just be the cameraman or a Texas dust bowl cloud It might be Mr. Huntington come riding into town Shadow came along There's a shadow in the fold 
So much. I should mention that the disease was named after Mr. Huntington. Dr. Huntington discovered it in the early 20th century, diagnosed it for the first time. It was erratic behavior is one of the yes symptoms of it. Yeah, heavy drinking and then uh, arguments, emotional outbursts. Um, yeah, just, and then some people... But pe also wordplay, right? I mean, some of the creativity. I yes. Think Obsessive wordplay is a symptom, and in fact, if you... I, I'm still waiting for somebody who's an HD researcher to go through Woody's journals, because he was uh, obs totally obsessive about keeping a journal, and obsessive, like writing, is one of the signs of HD. Um, and there are times very early when that starts to manifest itself in his life. He, for, I mean, one example is in, at the end of World War II, which is in the, you know, 45, um, he's in uh, Scott Field down in Southern Illinois in the military and sometimes would write these 30-page letters to his wife. Now, I mean, you could say that's kind of cool, but he would do that day after day and he would write them to other people. You know, and then, oh, also heightened eroticism sometimes, and he was actually, yeah, it ended up being a little bit of a legal battle that he had to fight, sent these long erotic letters to a woman in, I can't remember if it was California or Nevada, and that had to be settled, but that was another symptom, and then you see later where he'll, when he's finally in the hospital, I mean, and it's a beautiful thing. He would keep writing and writing and writing. It would some, some days he would just write the same word over and over and over and over and over and over on the page. The best one being just the word love covering the whole page. Wow. And then at the end, you know, God help us all is what he put there. It's like, so he, I mean, the, it, it, yes, the disease manifests it's, itself in various forms of erratic behavior, including <laughs> obsessive compulsive disorders. Is there, is there a point in which people say oh well, that's that's the point where it took over or is it just kind of always sort of it's mr huntington always coming around yeah well that, he, I, you know? I mean again i'm not the expert right. but I, I think it, it, it typically shows in people in their 30s uh -huh. um and it's a sad thing let me tell you and they're in their when if during the first period of diagnosis it's not uncommon for people to commit suicide um, there have been examples of people begged to be killed by other people and were because they were, felt so out of sorts by it and so pained. Um, but in Woody's case, yeah, I would say it starts to show in the 30s, but it's not diagnosed until he's in his 40s. But, um, and then even after it's diagnosed, he goes out on one more sort of jaunt um, and then ends up getting married to an eight-year-old, 18-year-old woman and has a child with her. 
Um, and then Dan, that's just nothing but a train wreck, almost from the get-go. She's much younger. Oh, oh. And anyway... Um, Is she still around, too, or no? She's not alive. And that's another sad story. All that, from Woody's first marriage to, to Mary, he had three children, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, three children. Um, one dies in a car accident, fairly young, 20s, early 30s. Two of them die of Huntington's disease, and I hope I'm not... Right, because mis- it's... Uh, yeah, yeah it's, inherited. they inherited it through him. Then he marries Marjorie the dancer, um, and that's Woody, Nora, Jody... Um, I mean, uh, Arlo, Nora, Jody, and a and a young daughter. The young daughter was killed in a fire. Uh, so I mean, this is all tragic for Woody because yeah. he's getting older. He's got a daughter who dies in a fire. He knows that he has two children who died from HD. Another one who's dead. And then finally, though, he has a child with a woman who's was 18 when they started hanging out. And that child dies in a well. He's in his early 20s, I believe girl in her early 20s dies in a car accident i mean so his life has a lot of yeah tragedy, tragedy. yeah from both the hd and just tragedy in general and and what i mean one of the things i really do admire the more i you know learn about his work is the guy just he's he never gives up you know he in the hospital he's i mean and they just threw you in like 18 beds in a room um this is not just in oklahoma this is that um, the New Jersey home for the mentally ill or whatever and he's in uh, Greystone for a while the famous hospital in New York um, and they're, it's not that they're trying to mistreat him that's just the way it was that was reality at the time but he looks out for everybody else you know he learns some Yiddish while he's in there he writes a whole series of songs connected with Jewish holidays <laughs> with the klezmatics recorded yeah. I mean he he keeps writing these journals, and, and you know, some days he's off, some days he on, he's on, but his will to just stay alive and be a human being, I just admire it. I mean, my friend, I mentioned them, they went to see Woody in the hospital. He wouldn't, you know, he was a chain smoker. Uh, he wouldn't let people light his cigarettes in the hospital. My friend said, we tried to light it for him. This is like 66, later in the period when he's starting to really go bad and can't walk, but still can smoke. <laughs> he insists on lighting his own cigarette and I'm sure my friend like all folk singers including Mark Dvorak and others like Jason likes to exaggerate my friend told me <laughs> my friend told me that it took Woody Guthrie 20 minutes to light his cigarette and you know it may actually be true but he insisted in spite of all the it's a palsy you have you know you shake so bad that eventually you can't they have to tie you in bed and everything but he still insisted on and that to me is like this interminable spirit that he had yeah. i think it's just incredible incredible yeah I, want, I, want, I mean that's a beautiful song about his first wife i wanted to ask you if you know what you know like marjorie <clears throat> was an artist she kind of i think to some degree must have understood him and i imagine the third wife at least knew who he was what what was going on if you happen to know with the first wife who's there's this 22-year-old who's got all these songs he wants to write and this and that. Yeah, well, they, they went to L.A. for a while. They lived there and had, uh, you know, a very simple life in a modest cottage. I think it had a dirt floor, if I remember correctly. I could be wrong, which was not uncommon in L.A., even in very close to the present in some old neighborhoods. Um, but this is the Depression, and, you know, he never really had a regular job. <laughs> 
People used to joke about that. He never worked a day in his life. <clears throat> he did paint signs uh, in Texas for various places and got paid for that. But he's trying to be a musician, you know, and there are other people doing the same thing. His cousin Jack, who becomes a well-known country musician, is out there as well. They played together. Woody had a radio show. And his wife is with him, and for a while he's trying to do this, but then he would go traipsing off somewhere. He just had this rambling spirit. You know, I'm going to New York, see you later, and not leave any money. Whoops. Whoops. And so she went back to Pampa, and... Um, you know, they just carried on. He didn't get divorced. He ends up in New York. She comes there for a while, and it, it just didn't work out. And eventually, she goes back to Texas. Woody gets divorced. He starts hanging around with Marjorie, who's a dancer with the Martha Graham Company, an artist in her own right. Um, and that lasted quite a long time, but then Woody becomes uh, uh, very erratic and still isn't diagnosed. And she finally feels like she has to move out to protect the children because they can be dangerous around children. Um, eventually gets divorced from Marjorie and then that's about the time of the divorce in the 40, late 40s is when things get you know, rough. And then he goes out on the road with the, the younger woman and that just lasted a brief period. Um, and he was even found in a Cleveland jail. They had to bail him out of jail. They thought he was a homeless person walking along the highway. That was kind of the last straw, and then they, he ends up admitting himself, and he goes into the hospital. Yeah, and he spent 15 years in the hospital. It's not like it's a year, 15 years. So. Did, and getting back to Joe Hill, did he, did he, was he familiar with the work of Joe Hill? Was, did he, because th these are kind of two 20th century protest writers, but I don't know if there's a lot of yeah, um, he was, and in fact, uh, Woody and Pete and uh, one of the Lomaxes worked on a book together, Hard Hit Songs for Hard Hitting Songs for Hard Hit People. Uh, it took a long time to get published, but in working on that, Lomax turned over all of these songs he had collected, including a lot of old folk songs and labor songs from the South, but also old Joe Hill and IWW Wobbly songs and. So uh, Woody already knew some things about uh, Joe Hill, but then he really became much more well-versed in that, that material, and so did Pete, for that matter. Mm -hmm. so, and they you know, started to play some of those Joe Hill songs. So. so what is it about history that really grabs you, rather than maybe another type of person would have said... I'm gonna, I'm gonna start a revolution. I want to be the next Joe Hill. Maybe you do want to be the next Joe Hill. I don't know. Sure, why but, not? <laughs> but, that, that, that. I mean, you were looking backwards as well as forwards, you know, rather than say just forwards. So I was thinking was more that? of like maybe Lenin with a heart, uh, <laughs> sort of like crossing, yeah, the L L E N I N with L E N O N, L E N N O N. Yeah, those right. two. Let's put those the two Marx together. Brothers. Yes, and the, with the Marx Brothers. Yeah. Uh, you know what it is really for me, um, and it's not any different than what you're doing right now, um, or what Studs Terkel did, or I think what Woody did is, you know, uh, I think it's important to tell people's stories. Um, and I think we, we already, you know, we're going to hear the Donald Trump story, whether we want to hear it or not. And, you know, we're even going to hear the Barack Obama story, whether we want to hear it or not, because he was president and somebody's going to write a million biographies. 
We're going to know about Franklin Roosevelt. We're going to know about Henry Ford because Henry Ford's going to pay biographers to write his own story. You know what I mean? Famous people make sure their stories are written. But to me, often the, the stories that are the more interesting are the people who aren't written about or who are forgotten. Um, I tend to think, I mean, really, not to pick on the current president, but if you've come from a family that's already wealthy and you're raised like little Lord Fauntleroy and your father pays for you to go through Harvard and it doesn't really matter what your grades are, you come out, you get a million dollars. When the old man dies, you get billions. Is that a success story? Mm, Not to me. It's more successful that, you know, maybe your grandparents came over and they were Ukrainian and they came here and they didn't have diddly squat you know, and they ended up on the south side in the stockyard and they couldn't even speak English and they somehow got a job and they worked hard and look at, look at you. I mean, you, you go to college and, I mean, to me, isn't that, a, that? and we forget those stories. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they're all over and what I found in going through labor music is because I, re- I would go back, you can use city directories and other things to get at these people. They would write a poem and send it into a newspaper in Chicago in 1885. Who is this person? They left their name, maybe their union local, maybe what town they came from. Okay, let's look that name up. Let's go to the city directory from Braidwood, Illinois, which was a coal mining area. Lo and behold, this is some Scottish immigrant who came over with nothing and ended up working his way through the ranks and became one of the timber framers in a coal mine. That's kind of a skilled job to be a carpenter like that and learns how to write and writes poetry. I mean, how cool is that? Right, yeah. I mean, you, is Donald Trump or is anybody in his family ever going to write a poem that anybody's ever going to read? <laughs> you know, do the Romney children end up playing lead guitar in bands, uh, Metallica or the Ramones or Rancid? No. <laughs> right. They don't. They don't do diddly. And if they do, so they end up in mid-level management. Big frickin' deal. <laughs> I don't want to go on a rant, but little people have great success stories and we forget about them or we don't want to know about them. And so I try to, I think it's important to keep those stories out there and remember that that is what, those are the people who made America. If there's something good about it, you know, even if their great grandchildren are voting like right wing nuts now, you know. You know, they made America. That's uh-huh. what, we're a country of many voices, and I like to hear the voices of the little people as well and try to bring them to light in some fashion, you know. So that's, sorry about my rant. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm glad I got the rant. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking yeah. maybe, oh, you. And, and you got a beer, that was I the did. reward. Yeah. <laughs> she was waiting for you to give that, that proper rant. Yes. <laughs> um, Maybe we could do uh, one more tune, and then I, I, I want to come back and talk with you about the folk songs of Illinois, too, before we wrap up. But um, your pick on the next one. Well, should I do a... Yeah? Yeah, what, I'll do a song that kind of crosses both boundaries. That This is one of my favorite uh, blues tunes. Speaking of people who are uh, not well-known, this is by a, a blues musician named J.B. Lenoir, um, who had some minor blues hits uh, in the late 50s into the 60s, died in, I don't know if it was 67 or 68, he was a janitor down in Urbana, Um, but was kind of the socially conscious blues musician. Some people didn't even like that. Some of the labels didn't like that at the time, but um, he wrote some really 
interesting stuff with a little bit of a political edge. It's not like in your face, but this is a song he wrote Mm -hmm. during the Eisenhower administration, which brought him under surveillance from the FBI. If you listen to it, I I can't hear what's so subversive here, but apparently they thought it was polluting the, uh, the minds of the young people of America. Maybe when Gunner becomes a father, he'll be worried that... Yeah, that you're a father, that your children would be listening to the class thing, I'm so bored with the USA, or something like that. And you'll say, I'm not going to let them listen anymore. <laughs> this is much more simple. It's, it's, it's just called the Eisenhower Blues. Hey, everybody, I was talking to you. Jiving, that's a natural truth And I said, who now, baby? I got the Eisenhower blues I'm talking about you and me now, baby What on earth we gonna do? My wallet's empty and my fun is gone Things go and I won't be here long And I said, cool now, baby I got the eyes and I will blue I'm talking about you and me now, baby What on earth we gonna do? Took all my money just to pay the tax you people are the natural facts I'm telling you people now it's my belief the way things go now be on relief I said good now baby I got the eyes and now we're blue I'm talking about you and me now baby what on earth we gonna do What on earth we gonna do? 
what on earth we gonna do? Thank you. Yeah, hard to tell what's subversive about that song. He just <laughs> mentions the president, that's it. But that was from the 50s and that could happen to you. It was the wrong person mentioning the yes. president, I think. Yeah. I'm always thinking to, and I say this, and Tony's heard me say this story before, but I, and maybe Tim, this is the kind of job, wouldn't you just love it? Like, let's say your job with the FBI was to just go around and you know, listen to songs on jukeboxes to see if they were subverting the minds of America's youth. Like, who had that job? Like, who was, who was doing that? Listening to every new 45 that came out in 1957 or something. Huh? You hear about the, the Supreme Court justices where they were watching the movies about what was pornography Yeah, or that's not. true. Yes, I know. Very good point. Yes. They, they find a way to spend their time doing that they somehow. Do. Yes. Um, but, but that's a song I think it's... Who, is it, it's your version that's included that, on the... It is. Um, you have, is it five volumes now? The Five volumes in Tell this Tell us about that series. series about the Illinois folk songs. It's, yeah, I, I it's a great a, series. Again, um, any of you have a day job. I had a day job for a while. Unlike Woody Guthrie. And, and it wasn't bad because, um, remember this, Gunner, if things get desperate, you can try to negotiate. Always remember this. I was offered a job with the Illinois Humanities Council, which is a, a very good organization. They fund a lot of humanities-based programs all over the state and give grants, have a speaker's bureau and all kinds of things. They do a lot of cool stuff. Um, but I ended up getting a job there and um, I, I, I turned it down at first because they wanted me to work full time and they had somebody take the job and it didn't work out so they came back and offered it to me. And I said, well, how about if I just work four days a week? Because if I could still practice you know, at night, and I, uh, if I had three days, I could still, like, fly off and do a gig or, you know, do whatever, do some weekend things. And it worked out very nice. And then after a while, like any day job, you want to turn it into something that's really your job, not somebody else's, and create within it the things you're good at. And so I thought, oh, nobody's ever done a kind of a documentation of the history of folk music in Illinois. Mm. And I think a lot of us we have what I call the Andy of Mayberry interpretation of American folk music, which is um, if you're, you, you know, it's like, uh, it's the upper uh, south that all folk music comes from, sort of like where Andy and Mayberry would sit on the porch with Opie and pull out his Martin and sing an old folk song <laughs> from the hills. And that's the only place it comes from. Or, you know, if you give some ground like some scholars did after time, you could include African-Americans from uh, blues musicians in that mix, but they, scholars, for the most part, left out the music that was part of the Midwest in the entire northern tier, in large part because it's always been a multicultural uh -huh. world and it's industrial and more working class. Hmm. And uh, there's a few of us who felt, well, this isn't quite right. There's all kinds of folk music. What about polkas? What about Serbian music, you know, tamboritsa music? Why isn't this in the same rank as, I don't know, some hillbilly duo from North Carolina? So, you know, now, Illinois has this incredibly rich and diverse music tradition because it's a state that's both industrial, Midwest, 
And it's also got a lot of southern migration, because if you look at the state, it goes pretty far south. It's, some people would say Cairo is the beginning of the Delta. Um, uh, you know, in, in many cultural ways, if you travel a lot, and I traveled and I found all this great music, and I'm like, why aren't they doing this? So the idea was the project, try to do a CD series that would document as much of this music with as many existing examples we had from old 78s, wax cylinders, home recordings, collections at SIU, Western, Eastern Illinois, U of I, whatever, and put that all into something. And we tried to do something that represented a, the range of music here in Illinois. And I'm happy now that we did this because there's a similar series that came out from Wisconsin now that's equally diverse that a friend of mine did and uh, there's stuff from Minnesota that's being done. I think the idea is, in the process, over time, we'll begin to see that Midwest folk music really is important to the history of American popular music and folk music, and it, it will be included in those books on music history. And it really, I mean, to me, it really does a good job of whether it's the with Illinois, I think, is it Winstrack you have doing that one? Or yes. the, and the the blues songs and the coal mining songs and it yeah. it does a really great job of creating a a place through music you know oh, and this isn't just oh here's chicago blues and here's this and here's polka it, oh, it puts it together really well so yeah it's, we, it's we tried series. to do that and um and i was telling you earlier and then i'll shut up about it mm -hmm. and you can ask another question but we we forget too that um nashville likes to shine a light on itself no more so than today um, but um, until the 19, end of World War II, Chicago was really the center of country music in the United States. And so there's a huge body of recorded material, and it wasn't just the city, it's regional radio. They all had uh, music people on there writing songs and playing music. Uh, you know, who can we think of? Patsy Montana, nice name. <laughs> live in Illinois for a long time. Girls of the Golden West, their promo material said they were from Mule Deer, Texas. They're actually from, I think it's Mount Carmel or someplace down, yeah, Illinois, down there on the Ohio River. Um, so there is this long history, too, of, of, of people here in Illinois who often didn't talk about their own history because it wasn't advantageous. But we, we have a really strong, you know, sort of bluegrass hillbilly country tradition in this state as well. Well, and, and I wish we could talk for another hour or two, but it's getting to, getting to be about that time, I, Bucky. And all right. uh, how about, I don't know, what's, what's, what's a song that you kind of really, that re you're really connecting with right now or you want us to connect with anyway? Um, Tony, do you have any requests? Oh. She wants me to play the ukulele. Well, there it is. I don't know, how does... No, oh, you would. <laughs> <laughs> Let's ask this gentleman here. I don't want to take a that's vote. That's my dad. But, You're asking my oh, dad. Oh, that's your dad. Okay, well, good. I'm glad I got my pro-Ukrainian <laughs> thing in there. Yes. Uh, Oh, you're the non-Ukrainian. <laughs> I don't know where that okay. puts one on the ukulele scale. But... Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I want to play the ukulele. But... Oh. oh, okay, I'll play it. All right. <laughs> All right. We'll end with a Joe Hill song. Uh, and uh, 
this is appropriate. It has a, you'll see in the last verse, it's a true story at the very end there um, uh, about the meatpacking companies. You might think that's not true, but in fact, it's a, it was true and it was a national scandal and it focused on the three major packing houses all here in Chicago, but it's actually an anti-war song uh, by Joe Hill, which he wrote uh, before World War I, um, and it's called uh, Stung Right. As I was hiking round a town to find a job one day, I saw a sign a thousand men were wanted right away to take a trip around the world with Uncle Sammy's fleet. So I signed my name a thousand times upon that great big sheet. Stung right, stung right, S-T-U-N-G. Stung right, stung right, easy mark, that's me. When my term is over and again I'm free, there'll be no more trip around the world for me. The man, he said, the U.S. fleet, it is no place for slaves. All you ever have to do is stand and watch the waves. But in the morn at five o'clock, he woke me from my snooze to swab the deck and polish brass and shine the captain's shoes. Stung right, stung right, S-T-U-N-G. I was stung right, stung right, easy mark, that's me. When my term is over and again I'm free, there'll be no more trips around the world for me. Day a dude in uniform at me began to shout, so I simply plugged him in the jaw and knocked him down and out. They threw me right in irons and said, you are a case. I'm bread and water, then I live for 27 days. Stung right, stung right, S-T-U-N-G. I was stung right, stung right, easy mark, that's me. When my term is over and again I'm free, there'll be no more trips around the world for me. and said today let's do something nice all hands line up we'll go ashore and get some exercise they made us run for seven miles as fast as we could run with a pack upon our back that weighed a half a ton stung right stung right s-t-u-n-g i was stung right stung right easy mark that's me my term is over and again I'm free. There'll be no more trips around the world for me. Some time ago when Uncle Sammy had that war with Spain, many of our boys in blue were in the battle slain. Not all were killed by bullets, though no, not by any means. The biggest part were killed by armor, pork, and beads. 
stung right, S-T-U-N-G I was stung right, stung right, easy mark, that's me When my term is over and again I'm free There'll be no more trip around the world for me There'll be no more trip around the world Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. Thanks to Gunner back there, Mr. Sound. And thanks to Jim for his assistance. And thanks to the Grafton Pub for hosting us. And thanks to all our friends who were here to watch and to enjoy. Thank you so much for all your support.